Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers, teachers, etc. I'm Tim McNinch. <laughs> and I'm Rachel Wren. Today we're bringing you insights on the first reading for January 3rd. Yes, and this is the first first reading of 2021. Mm. And it is Jeremiah 31 verses 7 through 14. And Tim, you are up for some preaching tips for us, yes? You bet. Awesome. Well, okay, so we've done Jeremiah a little bit, um, but it's a big book, and it's been a bit since we've we've talked about it. So why don't you set us up with some of the context of Jeremiah? Sure, sure. Jeremiah is a super complex book with a long history of composition and re-editing that spans the pre-exilic, exilic, and post-exilic periods in Judaic history, <laughs> and at least two very different versions of the book coexisted for hundreds of years afterward. What that means for us as interpreters is that the historical context that we assign to any particular passage, well, we, we have to hold it with a loose grip because we don't know exactly when the pieces came into the book or which parts we can confidently assign to the actual Jeremiah of Anathoth. Yeah, it's a hard because it's it's not only like what was written back then, but what was written later and said in that time and then drawn into the book as the book kind of progressed in its process of being created. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a feature of a lot of the Hebrew Bible, but it's particularly acute in Jeremiah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Acute. It's a good word. OK, anyway, <laughs> how does our text today fit into that kind of holding the loose grip of the historical context? Yeah, well, the the historical Jeremiah's career spanned about 40 years, from maybe 627 BCE until the fall of Jerusalem in 587, when Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came and conquered the city and took many of its uh, people into exile. Mm. This, this whole period really was a tumultuous time in mm. the political history of Judah, with sort of the, the pressures of those big empires bearing down the whole time. And so the, the book of Jeremiah reflects this with most of it being quite severe in its warnings and condemnations and predictions of utter disaster. Hmm. But there is this little window in the chapters uh, 30 to 33 that have a different feel to them. They're so hopeful. They're so full of promise. And scholars tend to put this little, um, what they often call book of consolations, Near the beginning of Jeremiah's career, perhaps during the reign of King Josiah, when the future just seemed more open and full of possibility in Judah. Hmm. Interesting. So this is kind of like a little interlude of hope? Yeah, yeah, I think you could say that. But, I mean, we should also say that it's not a uh, simple sort of Pollyanna-ish hope. Because even in these chapters, it speaks quite frankly about the struggle of living in Israel and Judah during the era of these great empires. And it hangs its hope only in the power of God to overcome those forces. Mm, mm. Nice. That's my favorite kind of hope. Um, <laughs> what kind of insights do you have on how you preach this? So I'd say the, the most likely context of this prophecy, the one in our lectionary text, based on its content, is, as I said, the reign of Josiah, when there was an effort to unify Judah around a centralized government and temple system in Jerusalem. There was also a vision at that time to, to incorporate the remnants of the northern kingdom into that unity. Mm -hmm. Remember, the northern kingdom of Israel had been conquered by Assyria about a century before this time. 
But in the late 7th century, Assyria was kind of weakening, and Josiah the king saw an opportunity to expand his authority over that former northern territory. And you can read about this in 2 Kings 23, by the way. Hmm. So anyway, Jeremiah 31 speaks about that same potential in theological language as a regathering of the scattered people of Israel by God, making Israel and Judah into one unified people of God. Hmm. Now, there are a few poetic names used in this passage. We have uh, Israel, of course, sort of the name of the northern kingdom, but also Jacob and Ephraim. And all three of those refer to the remnants of that northern kingdom. Zion also makes uh, an appearance in verse 12, which is a poetic name for Jerusalem, the spiritual epicenter of the people. Mm. So with these uh, sort of poetic names in the mix, the picture here is of a magnetic pull drawing the scattered remnants of Israel toward Jerusalem to find their relationship to God restored there. Mm, beautiful. So there's a couple of key verses we should make sure to point out. Uh, the first verse in the lectionary reading is verse 7, and it is chock full of verbs, uh, maybe we could call them verbs of expression. <laughs> there are five, count them five of them. There's <laughs> ranu, sahalu, hashmiu, halalu, imru. And all of these are sort of, uh, in a way, they're synonyms with their own uh, little nuances, but they're all verbs of expressing a, a cry or a praise. Um, hashmiu is a great one. That's a, okay, here's our little Hebrew lesson here. Hashmiu is the yeah. hifil of the verb shama, mm -hmm. which uh, you preachers out there might remember shma here, O Israel, shma. Mm -hmm. So hashmiu is make it heard, mm -hmm. cause it to be heard. And uh, we've talked about hallelujah uh, just recently yeah. and talking about praise or imploring. And uh, so this is a call to the people to cry out to God in as much language as they could draw upon to do it with all of these different words for calling out. Why do you, why do you think verse seven is so imperative about having the people cry out with like every kind of sound they can make what what's going on there i think uh i mean my my first thought on that would be that it's similar to uh what we talked about a few weeks ago where uh the remnants of the kingdom of israel had in a way been silenced they've been cut off mm. and this was an invitation to uh warm up those vocal cords again mm. and to find their voice and to be able to um, sing out a, a praise to God for what God's doing. Mm. It's a way of, of putting hope into words. And it's also a, a way of inviting a kind of partnership in the process mm. that mm -hmm. um, a lot of what we're going to hear in this text is about what God's doing, but there's an invitation for the people to be a part of it in their praise. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. It also makes me think of the, um, like a, like you talked about those, those voices who are silenced, like how you draw them back in is, is through noise. We, my husband and I were walking once a couple months ago and we heard the strangest sound and it was coming from two different parts of our neighborhood. And it was a, it, we figured out it was a fawn who'd been separated from the doe from her mother or his mother. Mm -hmm. And both animals were making a very odd noise that I'd never heard coming from a deer before 
but they were they were finding each other essentially through echolocation through the mm-hmm. sound they were they were drawing themselves back to each other so it's almost like the sound is even part of the drawing in that's happening interesting here. i like that i like that a lot it's sort of a um to change the metaphor slightly a divine game of marco polo Exactly. <laughs> That's really fun. Cool. Uh, what's what's another of those uh, key verses that you talked about? Yeah, yeah. So verse eight, I love the beginning of it. Um, here it is in Hebrew. It says, mm. And part of why I love this is because I love every time the little particle hine pops <laughs> in there. It's a, it's a presentative. It's here I am. Yeah. Here I am. And this is, um, to continue our little Hebrew lesson here, so the second word there, the word that's translated, I will bring them, is mevi in Hebrew, and that is the participle form of the verb. And the reason I want to bring that out is because in the translations, this is typically translated in the future tense, I will bring them Mm -hmm. from the north. And that works, participles can refer to a future tense like that, but when it does, the difference between the participle and the just general uh, imperfect future is that this is talking about something that's happening now or starting to happen right now. So all of this future stuff that God says God will do has the sense in this text of beginning right now. Here I am, says God. Here I am. I'm doing it right now or I'm just about to do it. Yeah, no, it's like a heads up. Here it comes. Yep, yep. (laughs) Here it is. In other words, this isn't like a way future eschatological hope that Jeremiah is holding out, something for God to do at the end of time. This is a hope that they can grab onto right now because look, here I am doing it right now. It's, uh, you know what it makes me think of? It's like right before you throw a ball, you say, you know, heads up or here it comes. Mm-hmm. But the fact of your arm moving has already started the thing in motion. And by the time the head comes up, that ball is going to be on its way. So it's like that participle form is saying like, here we go. You know, the top of the roller coaster, down we go. Yeah, totally. This isn't like a hang on because someday, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. This is a heads up, here it comes. There's a ball speeding towards your head. (laughs) So um, the nature of God's care is another sort of feature of this prophecy that's really highlighted. When when God brings back the scattered remnant of Israel, it doesn't picture a difficult journey. It mentions straight paths along riversides so that even the most vulnerable members of the community who normally wouldn't be able to travel the blind, the lame, the pregnant, they can easily make this journey. Mm. It's, it's like God is booking them first class tickets for this trip home. Mm-hmm. Verse nine along, this, along those lines also says, I have become a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. Mm. This is one of the few times in the whole Old Testament where God is explicitly referred to as father. Of course, this isn't a comment on the gender of God. It's, it's an analogy of God's care. Just as fathers were the guardians and providers for their households in the ancient world, God is assuming parental, patriarchal guardianship over Israel and is treating them as a firstborn. Firstborn sons were groomed to eventually assume the patriarchal leadership of the extended family. Oh, So this is a powerful image of divine investment in the future of the struggling people. 
In other words, God is saying, I'm taking your future on as my own responsibility. Yeah. And it also kind of extends that invitation that you were talking about too, because if the firstborn is groomed to take on the responsibility, then Israel is being groomed to take on the responsibility of blessing and calling and inviting the world to worship God, aren't they? Absolutely. And and that's nice. kind of how it pivots right there at verse 10, because it goes from an address from God to the people to a call to the nations around to check out what God's doing, how God's being faithful to Israel and to see how God has made their life so pleasant and so productive, how God has turned their mourning into dancing and all of those other great images in verses 10 to 14. And, and by the way, Verses 15 to 17, which are a bit beyond the lectionary reading, are that famous passage that's referred to in the New Testament, the one that says, a cry is heard in Ramah, wailing, bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children who are gone. But it continues, thus said the Lord, restrain your voice from weeping, your eyes from shedding tears. For there is a reward for your labor, declares the Lord. They shall return from the enemy's land. Hmm. And there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children shall return to their country. Hmm. So this is continuing that image that um, Rachel doesn't need to weep anymore because her children are finally coming home. Hmm. That's beautiful. That is really great work this week, Tim. That is awesome. Um, I, I could just sit in that prophecy for a long time, but how do you, how would you advise preachers to use it in kind of this moment today? Cause you know, I'll be sitting in it over here, but our preachers need to do something <laughs> with it. But so what do you think? What, how would you advise preachers to use the gorgeousness mm. of this passage? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd say, first of all, as usual, when we're doing the prophets, I think we should flag supersessionism as a preaching pitfall. Yeah. So when you're using this prophecy, don't just scratch out Israel in the passage and write in Christians <laughs> or the church. The, the meaning that we glean from this is not by way of its being fulfilled in Christianity, but by way of analogy. Mm. The point here is that the, the prophecy celebrates God's faithfulness to the scattered remnant of Israel and brings them home to be part of God's united people. When we read this text, we can celebrate that too and mm -hmm. affirm that the God who was faithful to them then in that way has also been faithful to us and will continue to be faithful. Nice. The other sort of analogous appropriation of this passage that I'd recommend to us is that we follow the advice of the prophet in the first part of the passage. Jeremiah tells the people to call out with all of those synonyms that we talked about, about crying out to express their joyous hope with bold confidence. But he also tells them what to say in verse seven. And it's not, everything is awesome, like in the Lego movie. <laughs> oh my gosh, my children sing that all the time. <laughs> the message of hope here isn't, let's spiritualize our suffering, or it's not as bad as it seems, <laughs> or even, don't worry, this is all part of God's plan. The message here that the people are instructed to cry out with confident expectation is, oh God, rescue us. Mm. So that's the preaching angle I'd offer here. Mm. This passage tells us to be real with God about our need and our suffering and our distress, but it also encourages us with a message of hope 
that God is attentive to those cries and that we can have confident hope that God will treat us as a parent, as an invested guardian, a God who takes our future on as God's own responsibility. Mm. I know we're, we're, trans, we're transitioning here from Advent into the extended Christmas season in the liturgical year. So I can't help giving y'all a verse from the Christmas carol, It Came Upon a Midnight Clear. Mm. That second to last verse, which I came across the other day, really captures, I think, the tenor of Jeremiah's hope here and frames it in a way that we can still use today. It goes like this. And you, beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow, look now, for glad and golden hours come swiftly on the wing. Oh, rest beside the weary road and hear the angels sing. Oh, that's perfect. It even has like a kind of a form of henne in it with that look now, you know, it totally, you don't say, you don't say, you say look now because something is coming in the future, but you don't mean for them to wait for years and years. It's coming swiftly on the wing. That's beautiful. Gosh, it just doesn't get much better than Advent and Christmas hymns, does it? <laughs> totally. I love them. Wonderful. Well, thanks, Tim. I think that was incredibly productive, and I hope preachers take you up on that because there's a ton here for great sermons. Cool. Thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> you're, so, you're so Midwestern. I was just giving a compliment. No, sorry. <laughs> anyway, preachers, uh, take this stuff and run with it, friends. There's going to be some great sermons out of this. As you do so... Find us on Facebook or on our website and perhaps share us on your social media account so that more people can hear the great stuff that is uh, going on for Old Testament sermons coming out of this podcast. Until next time, I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. Happy New Year to you all. We hope that 2021 is very different from 2020. <laughs> Amen. And you beneath a life's crushing load Whose forms are bending low Who toil along the climbing way With painful steps and slow Look now for glad